coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. We designed the modality to operate in the realm of primary consciousness, meaning it's designed to operate within the psychedelic state of consciousness and, and, and the very different reality that we occupy in that state, which is very different than I think most, again, most talk therapy, most traditional therapy is looking at grounding the client at finding stability by having the client move into a more objective sense of reality, right? Versus what we're doing is saying, no, go to this very subjective dreamlike experience that you have with psychedelics and bring your body with you and your body will know how to process the different things that are showing up there. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts, presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Eamon Armstrong. Today, we are joined by Saj Razvi, an expert on psychedelics and the somatic approach to healing, single-event, complex, and dissociative trauma. We open with an understanding of how trauma is stored in the body and why it can be so hard to overcome with traditional therapy. We then discuss the difference between primary and secondary consciousness and how psychedelics play a role in disrupting the default mode network to heal trauma. Finally, we talk about the psychedelic somatic interactional psychotherapy model that Saj and his team are successfully utilizing at the Psychedelic Somatic Institute. Saj Razvi is the Director of Education at the Psychedelic Somatic Institute, PSI. He is a psychotherapist and former clinical researcher in the MAPS Phase II trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and one of the primary developers of the Psychedelic Somatic Interactional Psychotherapy Modality, which is a consciousness-oriented psychotherapy. Saj's primary focus is to train clinicians to provide legal, effective psychedelic treatment in their private practice settings utilizing readily accessible medicines such as cannabis and ketamine. And now, here is Saj Rasvi. Saj, welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It's an honor to speak with you. And I'm very excited for today's topic because I've been interested for a long time in somatic healing generally. And somatic healing with psychedelics is fascinating to me. So thank you for coming on the program today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Well, let's get started with you. I'm often curious with my guests how they got involved in the type of healing that they focus on, and most especially with psychedelics. How did you get involved in therapy, healing, mental health generally? Well, it, you know, it was interesting. I, I was working at IBM. It was a previous career of mine. And um, I just decided to take a graduate school program on psychology because I always thought it was interesting, although I never imagined myself doing that type of work. And I, even in my entrance interview, I was very clear to, to these people who were interviewing me at Naropa that I never wanted to be a therapist. I thought that was a miserable job and, and somehow they let me in. And then, you know, about six months into the program, I had, you know, where you have a mirror placed in front of you and you realize all sorts of things about yourself, about your programming. And at that point, I realized I was insane. Right? I realized that I had such strange programming from my family of origin that I had never questioned. I had never, you know, it was the water that I swam in. And so it was only in a program that looked at that kind of material. D does it occur to you that, wait a minute, maybe something's a little odd here. You said that you had always thought that therapy would be a miserable career. Why, why is that? Well, because, you know, think about it. For hours a day, you're sitting and you're opening yourself up to feel the stress of other people. You're opening yourself up to the sort of the troubles of the world that, that people carry with them. And that seemed like I would be sort of beaten down by doing that, you know, five days a week for, for years on end. And so... Yeah, I mean, just just that whole exchange that happens between uh, therapist and client. If you truly care about your client and you're open to them, you do take your clients home to some degree. There's no way that you can't. So 
I was I was somewhat aware that I, I did not want that to happen to me. <laughs> and and with that fear, how did the reality pan out for you? Okay, well, the reality is it, it, that is a part of the reality, but so is a lot more, right? The picture is much bigger. I think the the reality of it was first of all, I got interested in fully diving into the world of therapy because of my own wounded healing needs that weren't met in in my life. And so sort of that, whatever, if you want to call it a narcissistic focus on self that got me interested in this. And then after some, you know, stability and healing had occurred, then the focus would shift towards, oh, I can work with other people in this way. So I found human beings far more interesting than computers. And that was one of the motivating principles of it. But then in terms of the the big picture reality, I think it's remarkable to sit there and be in a healing space with people and go into places that they felt were completely impossible for them, places that crushed them in their life, and then be with them as they get to the other side of these things. And uh, that is... Although it is difficult work, it is incredibly meaningful, I would say. You know, I've thought about being a therapist myself, and I've also had similar concerns. And a lot of that was in my initial understanding of therapy as traditional talk therapy, or even Mm -hmm. looking back at like the Freudian sort of like image of lying on the couch and the person with the pen. And to me, it seemed like so much mind. And for me, mind seemed like a lot of where the problem was. So the idea of being in my own mind and in my patient's mind for so much time seemed quite frightening to me. But as I've gotten older, I've started to understand that healing, even healing around something like mental health, is actually not simply about talking and the mind, but that there's actually so much more at play, which is part of why I became interested in somatic healing. So for the listeners who might not know, let's just start with a really ground floor explanation of what is somatic healing? What does that expression mean? Yeah, that's a great ground floor question because I think you're right. I think most people listening to this podcast, most people aware of anything dealing with therapy are used to sort of you know, traditional talk therapy, insight-based therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, where really, you know, the focus is on understanding and insight and connecting the dots and sort of meaning making and working with narratives that we have. There's a world of much more experiential therapies, meaning that they're much more experienced focus on you know, our felt sense or our emotional world. Basically, I would say that this is instead of the thought level of who we are, I, th- I would say this is the biological level of who we are. Meaning in somatic therapies, we're starting to look at sort of the biological, the nervous system basis for our symptoms and for our behavior. So is a somatic approach appropriate for specific types of ailments and maladies? Are there certain things that the somatic approach is best used for? Yeah, so... I think we have to talk a little bit about memory systems when we talk about what different modalities might be useful for. In the world of neuroscience, there is the area that's known as declarative memory systems or explicit memory, meaning this is the type of memory that your conscious mind has access to. When you sit in a therapist's office and you tell the story of what happened to you, that's all explicit declarative memory. And the world of somatic therapies and more experience-focused therapies are really aiming at the world of non-declarative memory systems. And we know that the non-declarative memory makes up the vast majority of our programming. And let me give you an example of this, right? So if we're talking about something like childhood development or childhood trauma or attachment, a lot of that happens before the age where we're able to even remember things in any kind of coherent narrative way. And so our attachment style, one of the most significant things about our programming that determines a great deal about who we are and how we operate in the world and our how we do relationship is all in the realm of non-declarative memory, meaning we don't have conscious access to it, right? So I think that's the way that I would divide it up. The somatic therapies are heading much more towards the programming that we have in the realm of non-declarative memory. So you mentioned trauma, and I know that an attachment injury, attachment wound is also a a form of developmental trauma. Can you 
express a little bit about trauma, the difference between a complex or developmental trauma and acute trauma, and why something like somatic therapy is particularly helpful when we're talking about trauma? Yeah, yeah. But the scope of that question is enormous. And and I feel like there's an open playground here for me to just kind of describe different aspects of it. But let's see. Um, First of all, the difference between simple or what I would call single event trauma is that there's not, it's not repeated and there's not fundamentally relationship involved in it. So we would be talking about like a car accident where, you know, you did not have a relationship with the other person involved in the accident. It was a thing that happened at one point in time, meaning that you had your life before that event, there was the event, and then you have your life after that event. So there, there was a before, in other words. Developmental or complex PTSD, complex trauma, is the exact opposite of all of that. It's basically repeated trauma that happens typically early in a person's life during a very developmentally sensitive window for them, meaning that as they're experiencing these things, these events, it's forming who they are as a person, right? It's forming their very sense of identity, their very sense of, you know, what family means, what intimacy means, what contact means, what eye contact means. Complex PTSD is repeated. It happens in your family of origin. And very frequently, I would say there's a lot of complexity that's added when the cause of the traumatic events is from a person in your family or in your close group that you're growing up with. So there's a sense that people have with complex PTSD that the danger is close to them and it's always been close to them. And so what does this translate to in in real life is that, well, you know, I can count on one hand the number of times somebody's come into my office and they've had a very solid childhood. They felt safe with their parents. They had good attachment. And then something gnarly happened to them when they were like 20 years old. And the reason why that's infrequent is because that person typically may not even need therapy, right? Or they'll need much more short-term treatment. Uh, It's much more of the, the complex PTSD case where the perpetrator was involved in a person's family or or inner group, that that's who we see on a long-term basis in therapy. That's who typically shows up and they have a lot of treatment resistance, meaning that's the person that, you know, will be, will be in therapy for seven, 10, 15 years, that kind of thing. So I would say that's a kind of a general sense of what the difference is between complex and, and, and single event PTSD. The other big component of this is dissociation. And this is coming from the world of um, animal studies. This is we see these these stress and trauma responses in the nervous system of other mammals, not just human beings. And it's been observed all the way back to the era of Darwin, right? We can watch animals go through these different levels of stress responses where, you know, an animal will have sort of mild stress responses to mild threats like um, anxiety, hypervigilance, insomnia, you know, some level of like anxiety. And then if the threat goes higher than that, then the next stable state that humans and animals get to is the level of very high, a high level of activation of sympathetic arousal, which is like a panic attack, right? And, And of course, if people have panic attacks, it's a very difficult symptom. But if you consider the context in which a panic attack might develop as a symptom, meaning that you're being assaulted or you're being attacked or being shot at, or there's an incredible level of threat, then, you know, that level of adrenaline and energy that gets released in a panic attack is really an advantage, right? It's a survival advantage. And then the next phase that we see is more of a numbing response, meaning the threat is so significant that our active attempts at dealing with it have failed us. So then we move into a passive numbing response, which is well observed in the field. And, you know, this is the realm of depression, hopelessness, collapse, you know, feeling anxious, but hopeless and lethargic at the same time. And then the final level that we see here is a much more, again, this requires a a level of threat that doesn't have a solution to it. We see a real numbing response where people just become flat. They lack affect. Their cognition is working fine, but their emotional world is somewhat non-existent and they're not feeling a whole lot of anything in terms of body sensations. And so getting back to the question of how this relates to complex PTSD and children, well, 
again, the, the greater the threat that we've experienced in our lives, the more that we will tend to end up in those numbed out dissociative realms of nervous system states. And children are completely reliant on their family for protection, right? We don't have we don't have much capacity as children. And our first response as, as a primate is basically to, you know, look for mom. And it's to look for mom and dad, look for our family for protection. It's social engagement is what we're looking for as an initial defensive response. And if the threat is coming from the very place that we're looking for safety, then our nervous system just says, I'm done, right? It just goes to a flat, numbed out place. And children who grow up in chaotic or stressful families or families that have parents with mental illness or lots of financial stress or addiction, uh, Gabor Mate refers to this as stressed or depressed or otherwise, you know, unavailable parenting. I will guarantee you that you will have children or adults that have a very deep numbed out place inside of them. And I think we're looking at complex trauma in that case. We're looking at what causes treatment resistance in that case. You mentioned animal and human studies around these four different stages of trauma. I think many of our listeners are familiar with the image of a gazelle has escaped a lion, and then there's that shaking that happens where the animal releases trauma from the body. How does that work in the context of these different levels, these different stages mm -hmm. of trauma. Because when we're talking about somatic healing, my understanding is that some of that somatic healing is actually involving the nervous system shaking out or otherwise dumping out trauma that's been stuck. There's something in the system that needs to come out. So you yeah. talked about these four stages, mild stress, high stress, moderate trauma, severe trauma. And it seems that with state one and two, there's some kind of way that the system can release. In stages three and four, there isn't really that ability to release. And so there's this kind of dissociative numbing with a natural mm -hmm. opioid release where the system itself is preserving itself by dampening the system. So this, this visual of this gazelle running away from a lion, how does that play into both what's naturally happening for a human being going through an experience like that and perhaps how that is used in healing down the road to allow the system to release trauma in that way. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very applicable. So the world of traditional therapy, of Western psychotherapy, relies on very different pathways for healing and stability, right? So basically, we're looking at cognitive, top-down, insight-based pathways for this, which are effective to some degree. I wouldn't say that they're effective at ultimately resolving symptoms, I think they're effective at helping us manage symptoms, right? They're effective at helping us regulate and, and you know, whatever fear responses that we have going on in our systems, we can override those through our thought process, right? And I think the world of somatic therapies and ultimately the world of psychedelic therapies are going in a very different direction. And they're going much more to saying, you know, this natural organic response that we see in the mammal world it's something that we have as well, but we're very adept at overriding it. So for example, when a human being goes into these stress or numbed out trauma responses, we do have the same capacity to organically come back from those places. But there are, I would say that there's a number of initial conditions that typically need to be met that are very frequently not met for people that allow this to happen. So for example, one of the initial conditions is that you have to no longer be in active danger, right? So the way that I would describe this in, in a teaching context is to say, you know, look, if you're working with a client and they live in a war zone and they know that they're going to be in that war zone tomorrow, then whatever symptoms, adaptive symptoms that were created as a result of being in that war zone are not going to unwind right? Because they're intelligent, they're adaptive, there's a good reason why these symptoms are there. And it's because this person lives in constant threat. And I would say that same thing applies to us. You know, if you have somebody and, you know, they're living in a particular family or a domestic violence situation, and the threat is not resolved, then their system is not going to unwind those responses. Again, they're intelligent, they're there for a reason. So that's one initial condition. Another one is somebody has a base of resource, you know, they have the ability to feel good, they have the ability to 
you know, self-regulate when they have to pick up the kids from school or go to work and be functional in the world. And so, so that's another one. And then the third really big one, in my opinion, is what I would call solution, right? So basically that people have a sense that there is a solution to the things that happen to them. And if they don't have a sense of that, then it's a very different picture that we're working with. So let me give you an example of this. Let's say that you were working with a client that was in a drunk driving accident and you know they lost control of their car and they hit a tree or something like that. And so they have some trauma from that car accident. Now, let's say client A that has had that experience trying to work with it and work with the, the nervous system reactivity that comes with having a car accident, but they have no sense that, you know, their drinking is not going to come to an end and they have no sense that the same exact thing is not going to happen to them next week, right? Now compare that with client B who, you know, your same thing happened to them and then you're working with them on a sense of how can we really prevent this from, from happening in the future? And we give them a practice. We say, okay, go out there and, you know, have one drink and then like call an Uber and take that Uber home, right? And just, just feel what it's like to be in the backseat of the Uber. You're safe, you're sound, somebody else is handling the driving. You don't even have to pay attention and you get home nice and safe. And maybe they have to repeat that a few times to really get it at the level of their body, the level of their bones that, wait a minute, I, I never have to be in a drunk driving accident again, simply because I have this option that I've tested out and it works. And so trying to resolve the symptoms of client A versus client B is going to look radically different because client B has a solution to what happened to them and client A does not. So just to kind of go a little bit deeper on this, something that I'm really curious about is the first thing that you said is that the trauma can be resolved in conditions of safety. However, so many people who had unsafe childhoods, that war zone of their childhood is not something they're returning to as an adult. And yet that sense of unsafety is really intractable. Like it's almost like it's their system is constantly sending the messages that they are unsafe. And so why doesn't the adaption of that environment, which is this childhood environment of unsafety, why doesn't that naturally resolve itself when that safety is restored in adulthood and someone is living a normal life and they're not necessarily in an unsafe romantic relationship. They're just Mm -hmm. kind of living. Why is it that these complex childhood traumas seem to stick with people throughout their lives and are so intractable in therapy? Yeah. So this is the million dollar question, right? So why is, in other words, why does somebody's present moment circumstances not um, retroactively go back and and redo some of the threats that they've experienced in their life. And I, I would say ultimately, it's because we are not creatures of the present moment. We're not just creatures of the present moment. In other words, when a client is sitting in front of you, they have a present moment reality that's right there, right? But in back of that present moment reality, there are layers and layers of memory that this person is holding inside of them that go all the way back to childhood that tell them, you know, whether you're a reliable person, whether relationship can be trusted, whether you're safe and things like that. Let me give you a quick example, right? So I'm guessing that you and most people can remember where they were uh, when 9-11 happened. Right. Sure. Yeah. So can you tell me how you found out? Can you tell me who told you? Can you tell me, was it on the radio or the TV or a, a particular person in your life? Yeah, I was, I was in college and my mom called me and told me to turn on the TV and watch the news. I remember very clearly. I was in like the quad and I got a call from my mom and she said to, to turn on the TV. It's a very clear memory for me. Yeah. Now, if I asked you what you had for lunch a week ago today, no, don't not not like immediate, not immediately. Um. <laughs> yeah, and and that that's a good thing that you don't remember what you had for lunch a week ago today, <laughs> because the, what I'm getting at here is that we really do have different forms of remembering things, right? So when something meets a certain threshold of being significant, and it could be significantly wonderful or it could be significantly threatening, it 
enters a different part of our memory called event or episodic memory versus what you had for lunch a week ago today, which doesn't, it doesn't meet the uh, criteria of being significant enough to enter into that memory system. It, the brain just says, great, this is your everyday life. There's no reason to remember this. We're not going to file this one away. But threatening events get filed away. And, and it, Eamon, look at this, right? You have detailed access to events that took place on a morning back in 2001, and you don't remember what happened last week. So it's a very different memory system. And the way that I think about it is that it's a memory that gets then laminated, right? And, and it, event memory does not degrade with time. And our nervous system responses to it do not degrade with time either. So just like you have your own particular memory of 9-11, if you had something that happened to you in early childhood that was highly traumatic, the same thing, your event memory will record that and it'll laminate that experience and it does not degrade with time. And most people, their memory of 9-11 doesn't necessarily involve a relationship. But if what happened to you in childhood involved you know, some level of abuse from somebody who was supposed to take care of you, then that is a deep level of programming that also does not degrade with time, right? So, so the answer to your question of, you know, just because in our present moment reality, we may be safe, there's all these layers of episodic or event memory backing that up that tell us we're not safe. And the more that those memories are hidden in dissociation, the less we have access to changing that. Okay, so let's talk about unearthing what is hidden in dissociation. And I think here is where we get to bring in psychedelics. So why are you so interested in psychedelics for this process? You are leading the Psychedelic Somatic Institute and have developed or potentially co-developed the Psychedelic Somatic Interactional Psychotherapy Model. Why psychedelics? How are they uniquely suited? And I know by psychedelics, I'm referring to a, a broad class of substances, including non-traditional psychedelics like MDMA, and as we'll get to later, including cannabis. What is it about the psychedelic experience generally that allows someone to move through these dissociated layers, maybe we can look at it that way, these layers of dissociation, and actually get to the traumatic experience that has been, as you said, laminated in episodic memory, and then have an experience that allows some form of lasting relief. By design, our biology is meant to be able to heal from these highly traumatic experiences and these intense reactive nervous system states that we end up in, right? So I let, let me say that a different way. It's not a problem that we have had to dissociate at times in our lives. It's a problem that we cannot come back from those places. And the mechanism that we have for returning to, from those are part of our biology, right? They're, they're, they're innately part of how we operate. They just have been overwhelmed, overridden by other aspects of our consciousness at this point. Getting back to your the question at hand, how does psychedelics or why are psychedelics so important to get at this episodic memory is, well, because psychedelics disrupt our censorship mechanisms, right? Psy psychedelics disrupt specifically disrupt something in our um, system known as the default mode network, and the secondary consciousness that comes out of that. And I won't go deep into the rabbit hole, what gets created there, but if you want, you can read our white paper that we had published and it, and it does talk about that. But basically what, what happens is our ordinary mind, the mind that you and I are operating in right now is our secondary consciousness and it's in control and it sees the world in a certain way. And it, it inhibits a lot of responses that are normally there underneath the surface. So basically you can think of secondary consciousness as a filtration system that filters out a whole lot of what we can experience and what our bodies and our nervous systems and what our biology is capable of. When secondary consciousness goes offline by using a psychedelic, well, we go into a psychedelic state or what the neuroscience world would call primary consciousness. And primary consciousness is much more of that mammalian 
way of cognition. It's much more of that mammalian way of being in a way. So basically all the, the nervous system responses that animals naturally have when they get stressed or traumatized and their capacity to come back from them, we regain access to those when we're in a psychedelic state, which is a remarkable thing to, to see. I, I think the research on psychedelic therapy isn't quite aware of this fact because they're more looking at, you know, traditional Western therapy, uh, talk therapy, right? They're looking at, you know, how do psychedelics help us with our insight? How do psychedelics help us with our cognitive restructuring and our developing new meaning structures around our lives? And I'm saying wonderful to all of that, but another huge component that I think has not been looked at just yet is when, again, when we enter a psychedelic state, how we regain access to these, what I would call homeostatic self-correction mechanisms that are part of our biology. We, we gain really deep access to that layer of our being. So these self-regulating techniques or tools that are endogenous to our body, to our primary consciousness, that's kind of like what the gazelle is doing when it's shaking. And now I've seen some of the videos on the Psychedelic Somatic Institute, and it appears that part of this somatic healing is kind of similar in this sort of, you know, the psychedelic allowing the client to release uh, secondary consciousness censorship, and then the body itself is moving trauma through it. I've thought a lot about the idea of the body moving trauma through it since I read mm -hmm. Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, but I don't, still don't really understand what's happening the issues in the tissues, the body keeps the score. Is there like trauma that's physically in someone's body and then when the censorship of the default mode network is dampened, the body kind of shakes it out and moves it and in a sense it's like running through the nervous system or running through the physical body and then there's a certain amount of that that needs to run through the body for healing to be possible? Yeah, yeah. So... I mean, I think we're getting to a little bit of the edge of what we're able to say that's based in any kind of research, partially because, you know, memory is a very complex thing. There's different theories of memory out there that seem to all capture different aspects of how memory works. I'll put it this way. The, the body has these really intricate, detailed responses to traumatic memory that emerges as people are processing with it. I guess that's to say that in one way or another, we have to hold the memory of these traumatic events, whether it's in some kind of area of the brain or if it's in our muscles, there has to be some imprint upon us because if there wasn't, then we wouldn't need to be doing this at all. Um, people wouldn't be recreating uh, really painful aspects of their childhood family in their adult family patterns. And, and certainly we, we see it arise when people work with MDMA, for example, when I was part of the clinical trial there, you know, people would regain access to all sorts of memories that they just had no idea that they even forgot. Right. So if the question is, where was that memory stored? Was it stored in, in the part of the brain? Was it because they, they felt a certain part of their body? Like, for example, if your gut can hold sadness or grief and you get in contact with that part of the body, does that give you more access to emotion? I think it does, but I, I don't know any kind of formal mechanism behind that. Right. But absolutely, I think regardless of what the memory system is that's doing all of this, what I can say is that, yeah, the body is remarkable. The nervous system is remarkable at not only bringing up trauma, but actually having us work through it. So the way I would describe this is that I've never seen anyone think their way through a panic attack, right? I've never seen anybody think their way out of anxiety. I think you can manage and, you know, kind of compartmentalize and kind of help manage the symptoms of panic and anxiety or depression through your thought process. But I've only ever seen people feel their way out of a panic attack. I've only ever seen people feel their way out of depression. And so that to me is saying that there is capacity that we have within us and that it's this ability to feel charge, feel reactivity as a body response that seems to be so much more robust than our ability to think through the, these uh, symptoms. So let's get into how you and others at the Psychedelic Somatic Institute are facilitating this feeling through trauma. And I'm referring to the Psychedelic Somatic Interactional 
psychotherapy model. So PSIP. Can you explain to me what PSIP is and perhaps how it is distinct from other somatic healing approaches? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, we designed the modality to operate in the realm of primary consciousness, meaning it's designed to operate within the psychedelic state of consciousness and, and, and the very different reality that we occupy in that state, which is very different than I think most, again, most talk therapy, most traditional therapy is looking at grounding the client at finding stability by having the client move into a more objective sense of reality, right? Versus what we're doing is saying, no, go to this very subjective dreamlike experience that you have with psychedelics and bring your body with you and your body will know how to process the different things that are showing up there, right? So so that's one, one big direction. The interventions are much more geared towards the psychedelic state rather than the, the ordinary state of consciousness. Other ways, and I think in which this is different, and this is a pretty significant way, and most of your listeners who, they probably have heard the term window of tolerance, right? And so if you don't know what that means, it's saying that, you know, there's a certain range that people can operate inside of. And if people get too hyper aroused above that range, meaning they're too upset, they're too activated, that's not therapeutically useful. And if people get too dissociative, if they get too depressed or too numb below a certain point, that's also not therapeutically useful. So the idea of the window of tolerance is that you have to keep your client within this working range for them to, you know, communicate to you, for them to be um, functional. And the the thing is that our, our sense is that you know, trauma does not live in the window of tolerance, right? Trauma by far exceeds this window of tolerance. Trauma lives in the high points. Trauma lives in the low points of dissociation. And our sense is that you have to be willing to go to wherever your client's system is, is taking you, wherever your client is living to reclaim those places, right? So that's a big difference between what we do and what other somatic modalities like somatic experiencing or sensory motor psychotherapy may do. Ultimately, I do think the window of tolerance is a very valuable idea, but I think it's valuable when we're operating from secondary consciousness, when we're trying to have relationships and we're trying to calm down and we're trying to you know, be rational. What we find when psychedelics come on board and the body comes on board is that people are very capable of going to these extreme states of activation. And as long as they have solution, as long as they have a relationship, when they go there, they're able to process those places very well. So in other words, we don't inhibit. If somebody is you know, working with MDMA or cannabis, or we, you know, we had a program in, in Amsterdam and we would work with people with psilocybin, if somebody would go to these extreme states and organically by themselves in a psychedelic state, we would not have them turn around and not go to those places. We're saying like, wonderful, take me with you. This reminds me a bit of the sitting, not guiding model of psychedelic peer support. I've done some work with the Zendo over the years, and these are not trained therapists. This is peer support. And the invitation there is to be present, to be friendly, to keep someone safe, and essentially allow their system to do what it needs to do to heal itself. And in this case, it's not even healing itself per se. It's just letting the system do what it does and keeping someone safe who is in a recreational environment and not prepared to deal with what's coming up. I'm guessing PSIP is different than simply sitting. In what way would you intervene in this modality? Mm -hmm. In what way would you potentially guide a client? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And so, you know, even in the name of the model, psychedelic, somatic, and then interactional, right? So we're very involved in the psychedelic space of the client. We become players in their psychedelic projections that are coming out. And so this is very different than a sitter model. This is at times where we're directive in terms of what we're doing to allow the client to experience certain things. And at other times we're completely non-directive, right? So again, the, the portion that I mentioned that made you say that, oh, this sounds like a sitter model is absolutely, you're right. That's the non-directive component here. But because this is very different than Zendo, right? Zendo, you're right. It's you're you're keeping keeping people safe who don't necessarily want to do psychedelic therapy work or anything. They're just at a festival and they need to be safe. 
And so in contrast to that, what we're doing is working with the mental health population and they're coming into us to, to deal with the traumatic memories of their life, the symptoms of their life. And so one of the things that we do is a process called selective inhibition, where we really, I, I won't go into the details of what it's like here, but we're using it to actually pressurize the client's system into having this healing response. So for example, let's say you're sitting with a client and they're telling you a difficult story of something that ha happened to them that was rough. And then halfway through of telling the story, they'll take maybe a deep breath or two, and then they'll continue telling the story, right? And so in most therapy, you know, a therapist will support people doing that. And at that point, what you're valuing is the person being able to tell the story while calming themselves down. And our suggestion is the story is not that important, right? The story is not all that transformative or useful if people have it. What's actually much more important is the nervous system response that your client just dissipated in that, in those, uh, taking those three deep breaths. And so we'll ask people to see what happens, for example, when, if you're feeling something stressful and you don't take those deep breaths. In other words, see what happens when you don't do anything at all to manage your nervous system. And what we find is that, again, it's this organic, naturally occurring homeostatic mechanism that starts to show up and people will become more activated and we'll get all these somatic body-based nervous system responses that pertain to the past event memory, right? So in other words, we inhibit their voluntary coping mechanisms, their voluntary distractions, their voluntary avoidance mechanisms. And what you get is this beautiful, autonomic, involuntary response that shows up. Once that response shows up, we just let it play out. But to allow that response to show up in the first place, where you know we're being somewhat directive and saying, see what happens if you don't do this. See what happens if you don't wiggle right now or take that deep breath or go to the beach in your head, but just stay right here and keep looking at what this piece is. And Amen, a word that I will frequently use when describing this work to people is, again, the pressurization, right? We are pressurizing the client system by plugging all the escapes that they have, plugging all the, the leaks in the dam. And when we do that, that's when we see the healing response. So when you're speaking about pressurization and you're saying not to keep a client in the window of tolerance, the concern that would come up for me right away is, is there a possibility of re-traumatization? Is there a certain threshold of experiencing that someone can have in the context of therapy that is healing, that is positive, but beyond which there's a potential re-traumatization, a potential enlisting of these dissociation tools and may, may set them back? Is that a concern at all with this kind of therapy? Yeah, yeah great question. And I will say as a blanket statement, not for just PSIP, but any psychedelic therapy, that there are risks involved, right? So if you are taking a deep dive into somebody's psyche to really work on this core material, then, you know, you, there are psychological risks involved in doing that. This is not the Walt Disney version of, of uh, you know, that somebody can just have a pleasant experience and all of a sudden wake up and the traumas of their life are, are no longer there. I, I've heard Rick Doblin describe this once where on some kind of interview he was on, and I thought he said it really well. In, in terms of MDMA, we have all but fully alleviated the physical risks of working with MDMA because it's being done in a very controlled medical uh, environment. People are safe physically there. However, he also said that doesn't mean that there are no longer psychological risks there. There are psychological risks when you take a deep dive. And so even in the best case scenario, psychedelic therapy is destabilizing to, to people that undergo it simply because, you know, they've had a lot of things compartmentalized that all of this structure is coming out of the compartment and you're hopefully forming a new, better way of working with this material, which again, all of that is destabilizing. So that's sort of a general caveat to what I'm saying. Now I'll answer your specific question, which was, you know, are we worried about re-traumatization? Right? And so I think it really depends on how you define re-traumatization. I think if I'm working with a client that was assaulted and they're sitting on my couch and they go into an intense fight or flight response and they're panicking and their jaw is tight and their muscles are contracted, they're breathing fast, 
and yet they're fully safe and they're staying with it. And then that wave peaks and then there's a gradual calming on the other side of it. I think there's certain therapists or certain modalities out there that would say that's re-traumatizing. You're taking a client to these really extreme states of feeling really intense things. And I would say, I trust the client system. Like, why is the client system going there in the first place? Right. So in other words, if we have this idea that we have a um, trust for the innate healing wisdom of our client, then why do we all of a sudden feel the need to intervene when their innate healing wisdom is taking them into activation? Right. So so that that's one question I would pose. And again, this is not me saying I'm against the idea of window of tolerance. I'm saying it's wonderful in relationship. It's wonderful when you're operating in secondary consciousness. It's not so wonderful when I'll put it this way. It's, I think, one of the most unexamined tenets of, <laughs> of mental health when we're operating in primary consciousness. I think we fundamentally don't trust what our primary consciousness and what our biology has evolved to allow us to do, right? And so the, the big thing that we insist on that we do to prevent re-traumatization is because you're right, we're doing two things, right? We're pressurizing the client system so it experiences it, it becomes reassociated to whatever memories are creating the symptoms in the first place. And then once we do that, we're also absolutely insisting on relationship, right? You cannot be a passive, you cannot sit back and let your client just go through this kind of intensity by themselves. We're insisting that maybe there's some contact, maybe the, the, the client knows that they're not alone in these experiences, I'll put it that way. And so I'll ask the question, what is the single biggest factor that was missing for people when they experienced childhood trauma? Right? I, I mean, a safe relationship. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A safe relationship with a competent parent figure that could help them with whatever is going on. Right. So if you think about everything difficult that ever happened to you in life, particularly in childhood, would it have been made better if you had a competent, loving, nurturing relationship that was with you while you were going through it? Right. And I think for everybody, the answer is yes. And so that's the piece that we're adding back into the puzzle, because that's the piece that's usually missing for people when they're being abandoned, right? When they're having attachment wounds being created, when they're having all these ruptures in their connection with their family and their parents happening, they're, they're just missing that somebody saying like, I'm going to be here with you no matter what you're feeling. I'm going to be here with you. So no matter what this is, I'm with you, right? And so, so the idea that what we're doing is, again, pressurizing their system so they can be, become reassociated to everything that their, their system had to dissociate from because it was overwhelming, but we're adding in this sort of nurturing, contactful support of this therapeutic relationship. Yeah, that relationship stuff is so key to all of this. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate that. Okay, so on one hand, you can take Prozac for the rest of your life. That's managing symptoms. On the other hand, there's this myth, and it's you know anyone close to it knows it's a myth that you can take uh, you can have a single psychedelic experience and then you're fixed. So somewhere in between lies psychedelic therapy. the The question is, how long does this process typically last for a client? How uh, much yeah. of these, you know, of these psychedelic assisted traumatic experiencing moments? needs to happen? Yeah. And how does the client, who could become quite fatigued and disillusioned with an ongoing process where they're constantly feeling intense feelings, how does a client understand and manage their expectations around this type of healing? And I understand the question I'm asking is a broad generalization because it's so different for different people experiencing different trauma. But I guess what I'd love to know is like, as a practitioner who's seen different clients in this place, how do you track a client's healing? And is it a finite amount of traumatic mm -hmm. experiencing that needs to happen for a client to basically have enough alleviation of symptoms that they're functioning pretty comfortably in the world without constant reactivity? Yeah, yeah, fantastic question. And when we had our clinical site where we were gaining a lot of concrete experience with the model, we had every single client would ask us that question, right? So one of the things that I'll first say is that the model that we've designed really is a psycholytic, psychotherapeutic model, right? So meaning that if somebody has these intense 
repeated over many years, wounding from childhood, them going to, you know, the peak of the mountain and having a, a powerful intensive is it's going to be useful, but they're going to need a lot more, right? We're, we're talking about long held developmental patterns. And so even though psychedelics greatly accelerate that process, it still does take time, right? I know we have this like fast turnaround culture where we expect everything to be on our doorstep in a day, but healing doesn't work like that, right? Even though psychedelics are quite fast, they're dealing with your organic system that will still take time to learn new patterns, to readjust. And um, we did a, a pilot study with a group of combat veterans, and we gave them the option of using either cannabis or ketamine, because those were the two fully legal substances that we had available to us. Most of them chose to work with cannabis, and we set them up with a 12-session protocol. Right. And so typically what we saw with them was that around session, you know, two, three, four, that's when they would really fall apart. Right. And these were wobbly human beings to begin with, like to, to be very clear, they had gone down the path of the VA, the psychiatric path, the prolonged exposure path. Um, they, they had done everything that the VA and evidence-based therapy could sort of give them. And the best that they came up with is I'm going to just medicate my PTSD symptoms by using enormous amounts of cannabis on a daily basis, right? And so ironically, them using cannabis in a psychotherapy session still worked, even though they, they were using, they were very familiar with this plant and they were using it on a regular basis to calm their reactivity. If you take that same plant and use it in a therapy setting that's designed for it, it becomes one of the most powerful excavating tools that I've ever seen, right? It, it's, it's extraordinary. And it works very differently than I think anybody out there has an experience with. And you you can see that in some of the videos that we have on the site. So anyway, back to the question, you know, session two, three, four, they fell apart even more, right? And that's when we were like, oh, okay, we have to really set up these support networks to, you know, hold people as they're moving through this process. And then it was really, you know, session nine, 10, 11, 12, that we really saw them coming back together in a much more stable organization. So Basically, even though they weren't doing great to begin with, the early sessions really further took apart their coping mechanisms, further had them become associated to all the, the traumas in their life. And then it was the latter sessions where they had processed enough that they became more stable. And then one of the surveys that we gave them, the average person, they said, you know, this feels good. This feels like we don't have to do therapy right now. So they weren't compelled to be in therapy, but it was a choice for them to be in therapy. And they asked for another six, right? And so by, by the end of the 12 sessions, the, at the average rating was they felt like 65% of their core trauma had been worked through. And, and you know, that's self-report as well as some other measures. So that, that's one answer to that question. Another way to, this, to describe this is to really say, we don't know until we find out what your system has going on. And we, we only really know that when we go in, right? Because there's, for most people, they will have a lot of material hanging out underneath dissociation. And only when that begins to clear that you'll get a sense of what's truly going on there. The rule of thumb is that the more early, the more repeated, the more family of origin somebody's trauma is, they're going to be on the longer end of the spectrum. We're talking probably 12 to 18 sessions. And and also to be clear about that, it doesn't mean that people are 100% resolved when they choose to end therapy. I think most people are in therapy because they're driven by suffering, they're driven by their symptoms. And, you know, I, I don't know what it is, maybe it's like 60% or 80%, but there's some number in there that if you've cleared enough of your core trauma and you feel like you can live life and you feel like you can do relationship, I think people just generally start to lose interest in doing therapy which is good, great. <laughs> and certainly we'll, we'll encourage people to take breaks at times. We'll say if they, if they are doing a, a deep, gnarly piece of work and they get to the other side of it, wonderful, take a break. Don't come back in until you have to come back in, right? So go, go live life. The whole reason why people do therapy is so that they can say yes to life. They can say yes to relationship. They can let things, people and experiences into themselves and they don't have to be hyper bounded by it, which is one of the things that we typically see in trauma, right? People are kind of in this lockdown state where they say no 
frequently, their, their, their contact boundary is disturbed. It's not a permeable yes and no response. It's either always all, all yes or always all no. Yeah. So, Saj, let's take a moment to talk about medicines. You yeah. just mentioned cannabis, which was so interesting to me to learn that you were working with cannabis because I hadn't really been aware of that in a therapeutic modality. Um, and I certainly hadn't really thought of it in the same category as the classical psychedelics or MDMA. You have some pretty broad experience being part of MAPS's clinical trials with MDMA, doing work with, I believe, was it Synthesis in Amsterdam that you worked with? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so Synthesis yeah, we did with some teaching with them, yeah with psilocybin. Obviously, ketamine is being prescribed off-label. The issue with ketamine, of course, is that it is a dissociative anesthetic. So it's kind of interesting is that if you're working with moving through a dissociated client, is a dissociative anesthetic exactly the right tool to use? Looking across these medicines, and I think with psilocybin and MDMA, those seem to be the ones on the horizon for moving through the FDA process. And right now, ketamine and cannabis are available. Can you give us just like kind of a broad overview of how these different medicines are helpful for this particular type of of therapy? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Basically, I, I, I don't divide medicines up into what type of ailments they work with, but rather in the white paper that we published about this, we discuss sort of different tiers of work that we, it's a speculative model, but we're recommending different tiers of work that people who have mental health concerns, it it would be good for them to maybe take that particular trajectory through psychedelic uh, treatment. So for example, I tend to think that it's not that useful for people who have significant traumatic or mental health symptoms that they're trying to address, like depression, for that population to necessarily do a lot of transpersonal work. And what I mean by that is people take these big medicines, they are way beyond a person's ego structure. They're, you know, you experience maybe ego dissolution, unity consciousness, you have this experience of the divine. It's a very big picture view of the universe. And your particular biographical material, your traumas, your childhood history doesn't feature very much into that at all. And so so I think there may be an attraction for people who have a lot of childhood trauma to say, no, let me go to the top of the mountain. Let me go to, you, you know, this big transpersonal experience because it feels like relief for them to not have to be them. Right. And so I think that's useful to some degree because you can get a sense that the world is a good place or the world is loving and bring that back home and help that help yourself with that. But frequently it, it, it's not necessarily ultimately that helpful in the long run. I'll summarize it by saying that I think the the recommendation that we would have is working at the level of being human, being you, having your biographical material that comes up and and gets worked with. And so MDMA, for example, I think is such a great medicine for working with, with trauma and with the, the, that psychological realm, simply because for the most part, it's not transpersonal, right? So when, you know, we gave everybody and in, in our phase two trial, the altered state of consciousness survey that Johns Hopkins developed, and it basically asked them, did you see religious figures? Did you have unity consciousness? You know, all these kind of transpersonal questionnaire, essentially. And pretty much everybody in the MDMA clinical trial answered no to those questions, which is to say you don't need to have transpersonal experiences to heal from trauma. Getting more precisely to your question, my go-tos, what I would think of, let's say if everything on the table was available to us, I would say MDMA and cannabis are initially really fantastic medicines because, again, they're not transpersonal and they're both body-based, right? They really help us address that psychobiological compromise of the nervous system that we've been talking about. And once that starts to come together, right? So in other words, once you are not dissociating intensely to the, the overwhelming and traumatic experiences that have happened in your life, then that sets the foundation to do work on top of that, right? So I see cannabis really good for that. I see MDMA being really good for that. Ketamine can also be use, useful for that, but ketamine is, I would say, it's a very broad spectrum psychedelic. 
It can be used for specifically for traumatic healing, but it can it has other properties of it that make it look exactly like psilocybin, where that entire world that the client is holding inside of them emerges and they're seeing it in a very different way. And then I think I, I would qualify the classic tryptamines as sort of above and beyond that, that once that foundational, once that ego integrity is achieved, that foundational ego structure is not so fractured and not so wounded, then I think people can go into more transpersonal experiences, more ego dismantling and reconstructive experiences that something like psilocybin can do incredibly well. So for example, let me, I'll put it this way. In the MDMA trial, we knew that MDMA never challenges the level of personality. Right. So if somebody has a personality disorder and they take MDMA, all the defenses that are part of that personality structure will just take that psychedelic experience and run with it. Right. So it'll it'll sublimate the psychedelic and say, like, whatever structure somebody has, it, it will continue that and potentially even deepen it. Right. What MDMA is fantastic at is challenging the traumatic events in a person's life. It's not great at challenging the personality that got formed from those traumatic events. And I would say the same thing is true of cannabis. Ketamine, psilocybin, other classic tryptamines, much better at challenging the actual personality that got constructed. That's so fascinating. I really appreciate that distinction and as well as the body-centered medicines of both cannabis and MDMA. And I think that the cannabis work and referring to your website as a place to learn more about that, the cannabis work is very interesting because it's so available and there's there's no issue with working with clients with cannabis from a legal perspective in jurisdictions where it's legal, which is brought you know many places across the US. So that's a really interesting thing as we're waiting for MDMA to come online. So wow, we've covered a lot today, Saj. There's a and there's more and there's more to do. You know, there's always more to talk about here. And I think that your website is a really beautiful place to start or to go deeper. There's that white paper, and all this will be linked in the show notes. If someone is interested in working with the Psychedelic Somatic Institute directly, any of the aspiring psychedelic therapists or existing psychedelic therapists listening to this program, how might they get involved? I would say, well, first of all, let me give you an email that they can send to and, and we'll respond to them. It's contact at psychedelicsomatic.org. So that's a sort of a catch-all and you can just send, send to that regardless of what you're looking for. The other thing that I would recommend people doing is if you go to the PSI site, and I guess this will all be linked, but there's on the videos page, there's the very top video. It's an hour and 10 minutes long. It's a training excerpt that has a lot of sample sessions included in it. And we're sort of describing what the theory is and what's taking place in it. So it will give you a really useful overview of what's going on here. And regardless, if you want to, you know, if you're attracted to that or you want to train further with us or not, I think that's a really useful map and a really useful understanding of how the nervous system plays a role in not only psychotherapy, but in the psychedelic process as well. So I would suggest, regardless of what somebody's orientation is, take a look at that nervous system threat response map and it will, I think it'll be useful. Yeah, and I can I can plus one on that because I did watch that full video before this conversation. And it's it's particularly valuable when talking about these adaptive autonomic nervous system responses that we discussed in the beginning of the conversation. So as you may recall, that's state one, state two, state three, state four, all the way from mild stress to severe trauma. And the video does a really great job of going deep on that material. So definitely if that resonated with you, I'd recommend that, which will be linked in the show notes and is on the website as well. So... I always like to end this podcast in the same way because I feel like it's such a beautiful opportunity, which is giving you the space to speak directly to those healers, those therapists, those who work with or aspire to work with psychedelics, who are kind of on the front line of working with mm. all the different folks that have been suffering for so long and have the ability to find some healing and relief. So for those people who are doing this good work, Saj, what do you have to share with them? Wow. Okay. Thank you for that opportunity. I will first say thank you for doing this work. And I'm in that group and I know it's not easy work and sometimes it's thankless work, but I just want to say, because we, I don't think that group gets thanked for sort of putting themselves on the line 
and involving their hearts and involving sort of everything about our being to just open ourselves up and be in the war zone with people at times and be in, be in these very difficult places with people at times. So I want to first say thank you for doing what you do. And wonderfully, optimistically, there's such good news on the horizon for us, both in terms of these medicines that are becoming available and also things that we have fully available to us right now, like cannabis. I will say that we got into this line of work to help people to heal, right? And, you know, I think it's a little despairing at times to say like, okay, I'm helping in this way and I'm supportive in this way. And this person's life is better because we're working together. And yet we just see very frequently, we see little movement very frequently. We see, you know, just suffering that goes on and on, and maybe it gets a little bit better. And I think the really wonderful news for us is that there are these medicines and these technologies and these modalities on the horizon that really can change the game in terms of what healing looks like and what progress is, right? So what I'll tell you, when I was in the MDMA trial, I had my daily practice of secondary consciousness medicine or somatic therapy, but still working through secondary consciousness. And then I would go to the my clinical trial site and just see a level of movement, see people accomplish things that you'd never see in any kind of traditional therapy format. And, you know, it just becomes miraculous at times. And you just sit there and like, wow, okay, well, that, that just happened. And, and that's normal. That's Tuesday. You know? And so I think it's really resourcing for us, really nurturing for therapists when it's hard work, but when we're there, when people get to the other side of something really big and they can have relationships and they become a better parent and all of these things, they, they feel more human and more alive. That's what makes it worth it for us. And I think that really is available. So, yeah. I love that. And obviously, I love this work too. That's why I'm here asking the questions, primarily as a client myself. But so grateful for the work that you're doing, Saj, and for how generous you are with your time. And I love that your position with the website and with the Psychedelic Somatic Institute generally is that you're wanting to get that information out there. You're wanting to serve people. I love that. And there's also the opportunity to work with you. All that will be in the show notes. Anything that we missed today? Anything, any last little pieces here? I think we did an amazing job covering everything. It was like big picture and precise and details where it felt like it was useful. Yeah, yeah, I feel really good about this conversation. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and thanks for gracing us with your presence and your wisdom on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. Thank you, Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.